from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. How you doing? I'm great. Hanukkah is over and Christmas is almost here. You can feel it in the air. Last week, I think I said I did a century. I don't know if I said that. I'll, I'll say it again. Last week, I did a century. And it totally got me psyched for biking. You know, I know you're on the East Coast or sort of the East Coast. But one thing great about being in Los Angeles is you can ride all year round. And the riding is great this time of year. It's not hot. Well, today was a little chilly. It's supposed to start raining. But today was maybe 60. Oh, so cold. <laughs> ah. You ride every day? Well, today I, I worked. You know, the actors have been on strike for a long time. So I worked today and I got to ride to the set, which is always a great way to go to work. You ride your bike across town, you get there, your, your blood's pumping, you feel good, and you're ready to work. I think it's the only way to get to work. And isn't that the classic way people get around on sets, at least at the big studios? Totally. Yeah. There's a great picture of Paul Newman riding his bike around some set. And uh, there's a lot of pictures from the old days, from the you know 40s and 50s, the golden age of Hollywood, of people riding around the lot. You park your car once on the lot, and then their sound stages are fairly spread out. And so you ride back and forth. And it's also fun. A lot of the shows give the crew and cast bicycles as presents at the end of the year. So that's a really nice rap gift. Wow. It's good to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> it has its ups and downs, let me tell you. It's better now the strike's over. Yeah. So uh, should we go to the news? Let's do. In the bike news uh, this week, the World Health Organization uh, issued a report showing that traffic deaths declined worldwide, but the proportion of bicyclists killed by motorists is on the rise. It's crazy. You know, last week we talked a little bit about the New York Times article that said in America, there is an epidemic of nighttime road violence, that while road deaths are going down in other countries, they're rising in the United States. And, you know, it says in this World Health Organization report that around 3,200 people are killed worldwide every day in traffic violence. 1.19 million people in the year 2021, which I guess is the last year they have. How many people died of COVID? It's just crazy to think that we allow that kind of carnage to happen every day on our streets. And the same WHO report said that road violence is the most common cause of death among children and young people up to the age of 29. We've talked on the show before about ghost bikes. When a cyclist or a person riding a bike is killed, they will take a bike and paint it all white and lock it up to a lamppost near where the crash happened. Well, now there's a new phenomenon called ghost tires. They take tires from a car, they paint them white, and they stick them in the ground where the crash happened. Hmm. And it's a reminder to people that road violence is a very real thing in our world. There's good news, too. There was a new report showing that the bike lanes in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has been an overwhelming success. That was after a lot of bike lash when they put in the lanes. But Cambridge is the first town in the United States to mandate protected bike lanes, although Portland also called for protected bike lanes on all Portland, of its major Maine or, or Portland, Oregon? Oregon. Oh, okay. 
But in Cambridge, these protected bike paths were mandated every time a road is reworked. That's a lot like the Healthy Streets LA proposal that's going to be on the ballot in March of, of 24 in Los Angeles, which just says that whenever you repave a street, you don't have to put in a protected bike lane, but you have to do what the city's own mobility plan has mandated for that street. And we have to vote on that to get that done. Crazy. Yeah, because the city council wasn't implementing the mobility plan. Right. Here we are so, in a climate crisis, in a road violence crisis, and we still have to argue over every single infrastructure that is put in to make our streets safer for pedestrians, people who ride bikes, and people who drive. We have an interview with Chris Casa in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about the cycling ordinance that mandates protected bike lanes there. That's Galen's interview. Galen hasn't been on the show in a while. We're glad to have him back. Yeah, it's good to have Galen on the beat again, reporting. Last up in the news is a new petition calling L.A. Mayor Karen Bass to have a public forum. She's been mayor about a year. She hasn't talked at all about road violence. She hasn't talked at all about the numbers of Los Angeles residents who are killed every day, every year on the streets. So the advocates are demanding that Karen Bass hold a public forum to listen to people who walk and bike about how dangerous L.A. streets are. And that's the least she can do is hear our concerns. And then maybe she can direct city government to solving some of those concerns. She was on a bike at Cyclavia as she was uh, about to become mayor. So I think she might be a bike person. It's always tough for politicians, Nick, because the NIMBY voices who don't want to change the status quo are very loud. They give money. They are vocal. We need politicians who will stand up to those people and say, this is the 21st century. We need to wake up and create an environment where people can choose what form of transportation they want to take. They're not going to be forced into driving a car. So Nick, last week we talked about the Santa Cycle Rampage ride. This week we have two more rides. We have Joe Borfo from Los Angeles of Bicycle Transit Systems and also Lauren Hefferin, who's a bike tour owner and leader from Italy. And they have two separate rides to share with us today for this holiday season. One is a toy ride and the other is a jingle ride. Joe and Lauren, welcome to Bike Talk. Jingle, jingle, jingle. <laughs> Happy New Year. Hey, Merry Christmas. Buon Natale. Hello. So, hey, Joe, tell us about the Toei Ride. You can find out about Midnight Riders on Wikipedia. It's got a great explanation of its history. 2004 was the first rides they used to do. The All-City Toy Ride is a holiday philanthropic event where Midnight Riders invites all the different rides that happen in Los Angeles to bring feeder rides to meet at a central location. And then we have a big ride together, we ask that you bring an unwrapped toy for the charity that goes to children. And we've used many different charities over the years. This year, it went to um, elementary school, LAUSD school, where all the kids got presents. We collected, I think, over 500 toys. We probably had more than 500 participants right. writing. So we had people come from um, Whittier and uh, Deep Valley, South LA, all the way on the west side. So we had like, I think about 10 different feeder rides uniting at Alvera Street, which is where we traditionally meet at nine. A lot of historical significance there. So uh, it's a great place to meet uh, in a big group. And uh, then we do our short little wiggle through LA. It's kind of slow, but fun. And we rented a place and we had a 
a party with uh, music and food for all the people who attended and uh, plenty of indoor bike parking. And it was really successful. Everybody really had a great time. So what were some of the rides that joined? It's sort of like that movie, The Warriors, isn't it? Remember the movie with the Warriors <laughs> where they're all different yeah, gangs and they're all dressed differently? For sure. Can you dig it? I dig it. Can you dig Can it? You dig it? <laughs> What, so what were some of the rides? Trash Pandas, the Mixed Race, Valley Riders, the Freedom Ride, also known as uh, Black Kids on Bikes, the group from Whittier, which is an offshoot of Night Owls. And then we had Night Owls from Hollywood. Oh boy, I don't have the list with me, but there were so many. East LA Theater that had many different groups that met, Bike Oven, you name it. And how many least. people were on it? You said 500? Yeah, at least. I determined that by the amount of spoke cards we gave out and the amount of toys we collected. What do you do with 500 unwrapped toys? Did you wrap them to take them to the school or just take them to the school and let the children pick them? Or Yeah, the photos, you can see them picking their toys and they look like they're super happy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're unwrapped and it turned out really well for that. I love that. I love connecting you know, a ride and a night ride, especially with giving gifts to kids. That's just, you know, it, it makes me smile right now. Yeah. And the magic of it is all these different groups, all these different rides uniting together. And then you get this feeling that we're all doing the same thing. We're all riding bikes. And that really unites the bicycle community. And I think we should have more events like that. We're actually talking about it for next year, um, not just for the end of the year, because there's a lot of events that are going to be happening next year. And, and so we want that kind of theme to keep going. Did people dress up, Joe? Oh, yeah. I wore a Santa suit. Uh, there was a lot of Santa suits and uh, various things. You know, a lot of people lit up their bikes. And uh, we even had BC Crofono come out. So many people that contributed. We had people who made T-shirts to give to the people who led the feeder rides, food, music. Wow. It was just a huge collaboration. And that's the magic of Midnight Riders is it's a do-it-yourself kind of event. You know, there is no one person in charge. I think I was just uh, stepped up to be kind of like a, a, an organizer this year to kind of make it all come together. But I'm hoping more people will hold the torch for Midnight Riders and, and future events. Um, well, it sounds to me like that's the magic of biking, but also the magic of giving, you know? Yes, for sure. So that was the toy ride, but we also have the jingle ride. Laura Hefferon, you're from the East Coast. You're from Boston, right? Well, I live in Arlington. Yes, that's correct. And yes, and we have the Jingle Ride and we've been doing it now 27 years, never been wow. canceled despite the Boston uh, risk of weather. Um, it's always a little bit, um, you know, pins and needles. But uh, yeah, 27 years I started it. I mean, I have, like I said, I have a, I have a bicycle touring company, so it's just a side gig. But we have a lot of events. I do a lot of events with my company. You know, I believe in the solidarity of cycling. I always have. And I'm seeing, having done it, it's my whole life that it's really exciting the way that cycling is kind of really getting a tipping point. There's a there's a mass that's coming to the, the cycling world and and the, the right. event shows it. Like I think I think about Did you have 500 riders? No, we didn't have 500. <laughs> no, we do ours on a we do ours on a Sunday. So I was just going to ask about the, the traffic. I, obviously, you guys don't have a traffic issue, but we have a real, you know, car problem. I mean, a car I mean, in fact, like the only thing that needs to continually improve is that we need to have marshals you know we have we have 250 people which is plenty i don't really i'm Absolutely. not really, you know the more the merrier on bikes on you know biking through boston on a sunday holiday weekend i'm in good charge of it but 
you know, you never, you never know. So, um, well, tell uh, us what the jingle ride is exactly. Sure. Okay. Well, it started with me just loving a parade and loving biking and loving singing and, and kind of looking back to the you know, nostalgia about the good old days of going from house to house, Christmas caroling, and kind of just getting sick of kind of commercialism. I mean, the holidays kind of make me, uh, you know, too much commercialism. So I just say, hey, let's do a parade. And so we just started out. I was actually pregnant with my first son in 1997. And we just did a, we met at my house and we just, just biked downtown Boston and back and just sang all along the way. And little by little, we just never canceled it, never. And it's crazy, you know, and uh, every year it just kept getting momentum. And and so now it's it's much more organized. I, we start in Arlington Center, which is, you know, 10 miles north of Boston. And we started at the Kickstand Cafe and we gather everybody in costume. And I have a couple people with a boom box and one guy, in the, one guy in the front, one guy in the rear. And we just, we bike a route that we've always biked all the way down to Boston. And we stop all along the way, Harvard Square, the Hat Shell, downtown Boston. And we play, you know, Christmas music. And it's kind of a raucous kind of like, you know, every time we stop, we sing and, and, and everyone's looking and we're just making people happy and smiling. Before last week, I had never heard of a Santa Claus ride. And now they're coming out of the woodwork. The great thing about these kind of urban rides, like, you know, again, having been doing biking but in the bike business for a long, long time and, and how hard it has sometimes is to get people on board to go on a bike trip. Once they do it, they just love it because it's right. just- Well, there's always safety in numbers. And I right. think these big group rides, especially these holiday festival rides, are a great way to bring new people into the fold exactly. and get them comfortable riding on city streets. Exactly. No, absolutely. And it, it's true. And, and then, and also you just get people on the sidelines, like, yeah, you know, beeping their horns and cheering. Sure. And I'm a good clown. So I play the kind of like, uh, you know, parade leader. So I, I you get dress that. up. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm Rudolph. Right. So I lead the whole thing. And, you know, we really just bring a positive. And then I just always scream out like, biking is great. You know, I just kind of like, isn't biking great. And then I get the crowd to kind of cheer. So I'm, I really just trying to get everybody behind us as yeah. you know, what we do is so great. Joe Borfo and Lauren Hefferon, thank you so much for your rides sure, and for sure, sure. sharing the, the bikes and sharing the spirit. Sure. Absolutely. Pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank right you. On. Well, this uh, next interview is about a street in Brooklyn that was put in despite a problem with the leadership there. Somebody in the administration who seems to be killing bike infrastructure and safe streets improvements. Well, you know, this is a common trick that a lot of politicians do, Nick. The mayor, Mayor Adams, says, oh, I'm all for, you know, active transportation. But then he has someone in his administration who, when the policy comes right down to it, that person nixes it. So Mayor Adams doesn't have to be the one. It's this unknown bureaucrat who gets to say, oh, no, we're not going to put in the bike lane here. That has to change. But this is good news. Barry Street in Brooklyn is being called a template for low traffic streets. And this is with Kevin Duggan, who writes for Streets Blog NYC. Hey, Nick, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. We are going to talk about your article about Barry Street, Barry Street Bike Boulevard, model for low traffic streets. I'd like to know what, what it is about it that makes it a model. Technically, it's named that the city has given it as a bike boulevard, which is a series of design interventions that the New York City Department of Transportation does to prioritize cyclists and also pedestrians on a given street, flipping traffic directions on certain blocks, daylighting 
intersections. Uh, yeah, they've had some more experimental treatments on this specific street uh, that they hadn't done before in the city to essentially discourage through traffic of cars, which uh, reduces the number of them substantially. And that's how you have low traffic streets. The big one that advocates were telling me about on this one is the traffic directions being flipped. I think it's 19 blocks total that you get this treatment and you have three pairs to one-way street where the direction of traffic flips from northbound to southbound for two blocks. And just having that design by itself diverts a lot of drivers to other streets than this street if they need to get anywhere in the area. There's another duplicate road one block over, so many drivers will just take that instead. And the GPS won't send you down Berry Street anymore unless you have to go to a local access. Dramatically cuts down the number of cars on a street. That's kind of a pretty subtle, but probably the most impactful change in design to that street, I would say. You just make drivers not want to be on the street. Yeah, unless you have to, unless you are, you know, delivering something to a specific block on Berry Street or you live on Berry Street. There's no real reason for you to go down there anymore. It's just the hassle for drivers by design. They just pick another street. And Berry Street is essentially redundant for car traffic because, as I mentioned, you have another northbound street one block over. So you don't necessarily need two streets going in the same direction. So it really makes it easy to kind of make it harder for drivers to use this specific street. There must be a lot of streets that are ripe for this treatment. Yeah. On the grid uh, in, in New York City, you have a lot of streets that are going the same way several blocks over. And we could apply some retreatments to, you know, every other street that's going the same way. You, you, you cut down the number of streets in half going a certain way, uh, at least for car traffic. And the difference is you still leave it open for bike traffic, for instance, or pedestrians in this case, and cyclists and pedestrians can actually go both ways on the entire street. So it makes it more convenient for modes of transportation that we want to encourage and less convenient for cars. It's definitely a model that you can apply on a lot of similar streets with a similar layout you know you've got if you look at you know the avenues and streets in manhattan the cross streets are pretty much similar on large parts of the island and if you have one design you could probably apply it to several with maybe tweaks here or there you know uh, maybe add some more commercial loading zones if there's more businesses on a certain block less if it's more residential although these days with delivery people need loading zones so you know you can you can definitely replicate it on a good chunk of city streets. There's similar streets across that part of Brooklyn as well that you could do similar stuff. Possibilities are almost endless, not quite, but there's a lot of potential there. Who got this done? This came out of the city's open streets program, which was a pandemic era program to give more space to people, outdoor space during the pandemic. You know, the city closed off streets and this began in early 2020. They began closing off streets to cars or limiting access to cars for like local access only. In the beginning, actually, it was wooden police barriers and then it became metal barricades. And so you had several of these open streets all across the city. Berry Street was one of the longest ones. It's uh, almost a mile long. It goes from the Williamsburg Bridge to McCarran Park, which is a big uh, neighborhood park in that part of Brooklyn. I don't know how exactly that one was chosen. I mean, it was, again, it's a, a redundant street, so it might have been a kind of low-hanging fruit. But yes, yeah, so you have like groups of uh, neighbors that became involved in managing the open streets, moving the barriers around for drivers to get in and out. Uh, and that turned into kind of these organizations that manage a lot of these open streets. So a lot of these kind of pandemic era, uh, loose knit neighborhood groups became managers of these open streets. They've been kind of spearheading, thinking beyond kind of the temporary pandemic nature of this and putting in more permanent redesigns, which the city department of transportation has been doing at some locations because, you know, it, 
takes a lot of work to maintain, to have people moving barriers all day, every day. And you'd rather have something that doesn't require that much labor, but can still calm traffic going through a corridor. So the city has been doing different designs for different open streets to kind of turn them into a more permanent redesign. 34th Avenue in Queens uh, was kind of the gold standard. It was also a very long corridor where they turned some blocks into completely pedestrianized plazas, some where low traffic, where they kind of push design interventions. So drivers have to kind of drive around certain, like not in a straight line, but around certain uh, obstacles to slow them down. Yeah, and some streets that look normal, but that can be closed off for like events on the weekends and stuff like that. Um, the city has been kind of following up a lot of these open streets with more permanent designs. You know, we've got, I don't know how many exactly there are, but there's like a half dozen that I can think of where they've been doing these changes. And they've all got similar stuff, but they each of them has some interesting, unique designs as well. Like here in Barrow Street, they put this coral paint at intersections. I think that was the first time in the city they've done it, which is an interesting treatment that they've put at some intersections to kind of signal to drivers that uh, something's different here and they have to pay more attention and they can't just go down the street in a normal way. But then there's somebody in the mayoral administration who's undermining these kind of projects. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's been several street redesigns that the city has, that the DOT has planned and, you know, brought through the whole community outreach process, you know, which takes several years in the city. And then either somewhere along the process or even in the 11th hour, uh, things will change and still the the implementation will either stall or it will alter to be slightly watered down in some way. And me and my colleague have found, uh, my colleague Jesse Coburn, our investigative reporter, has found that uh, a lot of these interventions come from Mayor Adams's uh, senior advisor. Her name is Ingrid Lewis Martin. She's been with the mayor basically his entire political life uh, as a Brooklyn Borough president and state senator here, as far as I can see. And um, she's been a kind of a point person my colleague has reported this, a point person for opponents of street redesigns to kind of get the ear of the mayor and then stop or water down redesigns. Uh, we've seen that on McGuinness Boulevard, which was a big road diet they tried to do in uh, North Brooklyn as well, not far from Berry Street, actually, where they wanted to reduce the number of lanes on this boulevard, which is almost kind of like a highway in its size. Reduce it by one lane on each side and install a bike, a parking protected bike lane. And this came after a teacher was uh, killed in a hit and run in 2021. That's what spurred this. And then influential local businesses kind of got the ear of this senior advisor at City Hall. The project was at first stalled several times and then it's, it was watered down so that they maintained the same amount of car lanes on a certain portion. And we're still kind of seeing what's going to happen with, with this project. It's this, the future is kind of uncertain. Another project uh, was a similar kind of open street conversion. Like I mentioned, these kind of projects they've been doing uh, over on Underhill Avenue, also in Brooklyn, where it was largely done already. Like most of the markings were already in, they already installed treatments mid block, and then it just stopped suddenly. Uh, and we've heard from organizers that it, there's a similar kind of dynamic at City Hall where somebody opposed to it gets the ear of someone within the administration and then it just stops. So this has been kind of a repeating pattern in the Adams administration. You know, it's very frustrating, especially if you're an advocate or if you're working at uh, the Department of Transportation, you come up with these elaborate designs and you get community feedback and then, you know, it can just be stalled or 
abandoned at the last minute because you know someone has influence on the administration. So yeah, that's what we reported quite extensively. So you know there are some good redesigns, but there's also this dynamic that has really stymied a lot of good redesigns in the city. In New York City, there's this you have a lot of groundswell for low traffic streets or yeah open slow streets, and it's sad that the vocal minority who can't see change happen give cover to this person in the administration who's just one person who's opposing all of this. Yeah. This uh, senior aide has been with Adams for such a long time. I think he trusts her political instincts. She's been a point person for a long time. And I used to cover Adams before he was the mayor as Brooklyn Borough president as well. And she was, you know, a, a key figure there as well. You know, on a lot of street safety issues, advocates would not be a fan of her. I mean, she has called congestion pricing, um, stupid the first huh. she said that in an interview i don't know what her opinion is on that more recently that's you know a bit over a year ago she said that but uh you know and adam supports congestion pricing ostensibly publicly so it's kind of bizarre to have somebody so senior in this administration kind of contradict his his own policy on that hmm. not to give her too much airtime or him uh do you see a time when there's a tipping point in new york city where you know average people just families and everything will get around by bike in like a really big part of the mode share? It depends on kind of which part of the city you are in, I think, and the infrastructure that's available. In certain parts of the city, you see a lot more cycling traffic. You see families on cargo bikes, but in other parts, it's just still much more designed for the car because it's such a big city. It really is different cities in different parts. Yeah, so it's hard to say for me, like when it will be a tipping point for most of the city. I think the pandemic really made it clear to people. I know people say this over and over again, but I think people were aware of like how much space we we give to cars, you know, when we had these open streets or the outdoor dining program, I think it really changed how people saw the streetscape. From an advocacy perspective, it's important, I, I imagine, for advocates to kind of keep that momentum going and keep demanding more space to be reclaimed from cars. Barry Street in New York City is a great model, and it's one of a few in New York City. A big part of what makes Barry interesting to me was the kind of interventions it's done for not just cyclists, but also pedestrians. Cars are supposed to only be going at five miles an hour down that street and are supposed to be giving priority to cyclists and pedestrians on the whole, like in the middle of the street. There are several ways that the city has done this. One of the very promising ways to me is uh, intersection daylighting, which essentially means you clear an intersection with the corners of parked cars because they can obstruct the views for both pedestrians and drivers. More than half of crash injuries in New York City happen at intersections. So it's a very dangerous location. Uh, on a given street. Anybody that's crossed the street and intersections had to peek out behind a parked car can intuitively understand what difference it makes in your sight lines. If you don't have that car there, you can see way further. The driver coming down can see you from way further. So it immediately has a lot of safety benefits. And on Barry Street, they put daylighting at every single intersection. So you have a extended curb with paint, like they have this beige gravel paint uh, where they basically make the corner larger for pedestrians and then they'll put some hard infrastructure in there to keep out cars from just parking in there because any space that you open up in new york city a car will just park in there unless it's kept out physically so they'll put in you know bike racks boulders like big rocks basically planters stuff like that and it doubles as extra space for people you can sit on a boulder you can park your bike you know you have some extra greenery and that keeps the corners clear for pedestrians to feel safe to cross. And oftentimes there's a pedestrian island as well, where you can stand and that shortens the crossing distance from one side to the other. 
the crossings for pedestrians and just the low traffic as well. It makes you feel safer to walk just down the street because there's hardly any cars coming in. You can they're coming down slower, so you can kind of see them coming and get out of the way if you need to. And I saw, you know, I saw people of all ages walking down that street. I saw elderly couples walking down. I saw people with kids or kids playing in the street. It runs the gamut really of who it makes it safer for it. It's not just like young, able-bodied cyclists that can now go down the street. It really helps a lot of different people. You know, if you don't get these things right, people can say protected bike lanes don't work or low traffic streets don't work. And the street is only as good as its intersections. So you're solving it over there. And uh, so your article is Eyes on the Street, Barry Street Bike Boulevard is a model for low traffic streets. At Streets Blog NYC. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Again, that was Kevin Duggan, who writes for Streets Blog NYC. And up next is Galen's interview with Chris Casser about cycling in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You are with DJ Mook Master Bikes, also known as Galen Mook, broadcasting out from Boston, Massachusetts. And we are crossing the river today to talk with Chris Casser. He's a volunteer with the Cambridge Bicycle Safety Organization. I've known Chris for several years, and we are super inspired by the work that Cambridge as a municipality is doing, not through nothing, through a lot of pressure from the advocates like Chris and his compatriots as part of Cambridge Bike Safety. So super proud to have you on the program. Chris, thank you for joining us on Bike Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Let's just dive right in. For those listening from around the country who are unfamiliar with the city of Cambridge, can you describe a little bit of what is currently the cycling situation in Cambridge, what it has come from recently, and kind of where we are at in making Cambridge a more bike-friendly, safer place to ride. So when I first moved to Cambridge about 25 years ago, it was rare to see people biking routinely to do everyday commutes and and errands and things like that. And it's completely transformed. It's a kind of ideal place to bike. It's a university town in a lot of ways. We have a bunch of universities in Boston and Cambridge. And in the area, it's pretty flat and it's pretty dense. So you don't have to go very far to go to work often or to go shopping. And many people walk for their commute or take transit. And biking has been really critical at filling that gap of um, kind of helping people use transit, but also shift away and move modes to getting to where they need to go. So first off, props to the city for getting it down. But I'm curious as how we've gotten to this point. If you can think back, not to belabor the point, but 25 years ago, there wasn't much out there. And for those of us who ride in Cambridge now, there's basically protected bike lanes almost to all destinations and origins. So I'm curious a little bit on how we've gotten to be such a, well, let's call it a cycling mecca, at least for Eastern Massachusetts. (laughs) That's great. So When I first moved here, there were no separated bike lanes or protected bike lanes. And uh, while I was in college here, there was the first protected bike lane installed in Cambridge. And it was really exciting, I think, uh, to see people react to it and respond to it. It was a sidewalk level protected facility. Was that by MIT? MIT. Yeah, Yeah, by MIT. Mm -hmm. And then soon after one followed that went that ran from uh, Cambridge, like our central square, all the way to the river on Western Avenue. And it was a similar sidewalk level protected facility. And people almost universally appreciated these facilities because they're really completely separated off from traffic. And they also are separated from sidewalk travel where pedestrians are, but they're extremely expensive and extremely slow to build. So one of the challenges that we saw was that, you know, if we wanted to build up this network, we'd have to figure out more flexible materials. And the city has been really innovative in figuring out how to do these quick build protected bike lanes, which we've seen in a lot of other places including New York City, 
and other major metropolitan areas. So we built out a pretty broad network, but it's still being developed. And some of our major dangerous streets right now still only have painted bike lanes, and we're still working to fix that. I'm curious about the policy angle for this conversation, because what we've seen with the safe cycling ordinance, which made its way through city council up to the city manager and is now being implemented both by the Department of Public Works and when they're rebuilding a street, but also developers when they're coming in to Cambridge. Can you talk a bit and kind of elucidate our audience on what the safe cycling ordinance is and where it came from? Yeah, so the cycling safety ordinance is built exactly for the reason that you said, that it, it is a battle for every single street. There are always going to be people that have serious and indeed valid concerns sometimes about changes and trade-offs that will happen as road changes happen and they're implemented. And because of that, one of the things that we've seen happen again and again is that people, and this is not just in Cambridge, this is worldwide, there are, you know, there's the, the book Street Fight is kind of written about this which is the idea that as projects start to go ahead, people will be excited about the design. In principle, they agree on the idea of making cycling safer for, cycling safe, <laughs> safer for everyone, but also acknowledge the challenges and sometimes are a little bit worried, maybe sometimes too much about business impacts, which we've seen are, are very often negligible or even positive. And so we've seen this sort of Thing happen again and again in our area. And one of the things that we kind of decided was first, let's build out, and the city took really big leadership on this. Let's build out what we agree would be a reasonable, safe, core protected network. What do we need to help people get east to west in the city, north to south in the city? And we had agreements on what that should be, and it was an aspirational plan. And so the first step that we did in 2019 was build the cycling safety ordinance, which said that anytime any one of those streets would be reconstructed, a separated protected facility should be installed on that segment of the road, no matter how small it is, because very often in cities, you know, just a few blocks at a time are reconstructed or redeveloped, maybe for a sewer project or a sidewalk project. And one of the things that we were seeing was that there's this sort of this gap of where projects would actually get implemented. And so what we did is just kind of you know, worked with the city council to really urge the city manager to build this network anytime any one of these blocks was reconstructed. And that was done through an ordinance. So in Cambridge, we have this unusual form of government where we have a city council that defines policy goals and a city manager who implements them rather than like a strong mayor system. And so the city manager has a law now that says anytime those things are reconstructed, then a protected separated facility would have to be installed. And then in 2020, we added a schedule to it because one of the things that we saw was just that those things, those projects just happen really slowly. Sometimes they're once in a generation or even low, you know, slower for a major road to be reconstructed in Cambridge. And so at that rate, we would not have protected separated facilities for a really long time. But we've had this bike plan since 2015. And the, the timeline is about five to seven years. And reconstruction of some of these roads just has to start by the five years into this plan. So there's a really long time for design, for thorough discussions. For example, I live really close to this street called Cambridge Street in Cambridge, and there have been 150 crashes since 2021. 31 of those have involved a driver hitting a cyclist. I was one of them, actually, which is really uh, a bummer. I'm okay I'm, now, but it, I'm was, sorry, yeah. it was really, yeah, no, thank you. It, it was, you know, one of the things that you kind of was a, a surprise to me as an advocate, I, you know, for it to happen to me, you know, I've known a lot of people that this, this stuff has happened to. And, you know, I was one of the 31 that got hit and 84% of those folks ended up with injuries. And 
that stretch, like where I got hit, somebody got hit within two weeks again. And then there are 10 crashes overall in that segment. So that's just a dangerous facility and we have to move forward on, you know, on fixing those. And so what we've seen for this project is that we have a year long discussion. There are design meetings, there have been in-person open houses, Zoom meetings, everybody got a postcard, 6,000 people got postcards in the area. Materials are translated into nine languages for, so that people can be engaged who don't speak English primarily. And I think this is wonderful that we're seeing this really thorough process and engagement with each of the business owners in the area. So there's going to be outreach to every business owner to understand and define what their needs are and to try and best accommodate and mitigate those trade-offs as they go forward with the projects. So we've seen this kind of timeline to build out these projects. It's, it's ambitious, but I think it's reasonable at the same time. And I'm hopeful that we keep moving forward, but it has been, it has been touch and go and it's been challenging. There are a lot of people that are upset about these projects. Yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners can commiserate with the lethargy or glacial pace that sometimes it takes to do a road reconstruction process when, you know, for us who are out there, every single day matters, right? But I'm curious, getting back to 2019 or kind of the campaign leading up to it, because as I understand it, Cambridge is one of the first municipalities in the country to really state that when a road is being touched, it has to compart with the bike plan. And it's an ambitious bike plan. And I think it gives the DPW and the city manager cover because this got passed through city council. So I want to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about the political will that you and your other advocates were able to generate in order to get an ordinance through city council, which arguably is the power holders. And, and how was that campaign? Was it acrimonious? Was it drawn out? Basically, yeah, let, let's ruminate a bit and maybe use this as an example for others who are listening in. I'm building on the work of so many people that have worked really hard before me. The folks that were building on this really were, were responding to tragic deaths that happened in our community. And people really in the community were very upset about the deaths of cyclists and of even, you know, many pedestrians as well. And the serious life-altering injuries. And I don't need to, I'm, you know, ruminate on that in this program. I'm sure people understand that really well. But, it, you know, this is one of the things in this community, even though in Cambridge, not everybody bikes, we knew many people want to bike or bike sometimes. And one of the biggest barriers to keeping people from biking was safe and protected facilities. And so we actually collect data as a city where um, we ask all sorts of questions about public safety, about health and wellness, about educational systems. And one of the things we actually, you know, routinely capture data on every two years in this structured survey was whether or not people wanted more bike lanes and whether they liked to bike or wanted to bike more. And those numbers were extremely high. People, I think, you know, when when not presented with any trade-offs, certainly overwhelmingly want to see more protected facilities for cyclists. And then even in Cambridge, we had 64% of people respond that they wanted, even if it would have some trade-offs, to, to, to build up more protected bike lanes. So we saw that number was very strong. There was strong popular support for it. And on that basis, the Cambridge Bike Safety Group really worked very aggressively and hard to, to really help counselors understand the, the urgent need for these projects and the challenges that would happen. And I would say, you know, it, it took to get, you know, it took seven counselors out of nine to really push a lot of this stuff forward. And that means seven to two is really an unbelievably overwhelming supermajority of counselor support to do this, to really define the urgency and the need for, for doing these projects faster. And I think that was hard work, but it wasn't 
terribly hard work because I think a lot of times people would meet counselors on the street and say, we, we really need to have safer, you know, safer facilities. We need to make sure our streets are safer for our children. We see that, for example, in, you know, just doing outreach to schools, parents who drop their kids off by car are still overwhelmingly supportive of safer streets projects and understand the need to make sure that cars are traveling more carefully, more safely. We've seen that 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 has broad community support. So I think that's one of the reasons why this has been successful. And I think uh, generally as a template, we've seen other municipalities follow it. So it's really an effective one because what we see project after project is that there are concerned, powerful people that really believe the worst will happen. And we, we've actually not seen it, right? So, you know, for example, we know we, we built the other half of Cambridge Street, safer separated facilities, and there are no vacancies right now. Businesses thought they would be closing in, in a matter of months on that stretch. And, you know, it's a comfortable, pleasant place to, uh, to bike, but it's also a much safer place to drive. We've seen vehicle speeds come down mostly below the speed limit now. There are shorter crossing for, crossings for pedestrians. So crashes of all modes, people biking, driving, or cycling have all gone down on that other half of Cambridge Street. The side that I'm on, I'm hoping will happen soon in the next, you know, it looks like about a year from now, you know, if all goes well. So, you know, we've seen this kind of be a very powerful model to really kind of enforce that this, this needs to happen. And it's made it really possible for the transportation department, which I think understands the trade-offs and really deeply cares about them. Yeah. to be able to at least have a different type of conversation before the conversation at every public meeting was whether or not we should do the project. And now the conversation is how do we best do the project? How do we make sure that we're accommodating needs? How do we make sure that we're doing this in a way that will we'll actually indeed create safer facilities for people? How do we do transit priority with these projects? So we've seen a lot of really positive things come out of this. And I think that this has been an opportunity to discuss what is the fair, equitable use of the streets? How do we encourage mobility options? How do we invest in communities which have far too often been disinvested in? And so I think we've seen that um, we have a livable streets alliance, which has developed, it's an advocacy organization for, for mobility and walkability in the city and transit. And they, they studied that many of these crashes happen in areas that are environmental justice communities. These communities that have been systematically marginalized over a long period of time. So we're seeing those those investments really pay off in these communities where it would be hard to do a project otherwise. I love it. And as somebody who writes for Cambridge, I'm grateful for the work that you and your team is up to. Thanks, Galen. It's great to talk to you. Chris Castle from the Cambridge Bike Safety Organization. We're talking about all the great work that's happening in the city and keep it up, Chris. And hopefully we can spread the word to other municipalities throughout the country. Thanks so much. Take care. We talk a lot on the show about bicycle advocacy. One of the main reasons why more people don't ride their bike more often is because they feel not safe doing it. So we spend a lot of time talking about safe streets, bike lanes, advocacy, but sometimes we forget the beauty of the bicycle. And that's why today's guest is Sarah Cochran. And Sarah is the chief curator of an exhibit space in Sag Harbor, New York, called The Church. Sarah, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you so much. You know, I forgot how I found out about you all, but I have been online. I'm in Los Angeles, so I haven't been able to see your space in person, but I have seen it online and it is absolutely beautiful exhibit space. But can you tell me a little bit about the exhibit that you have now and why our listeners would really dig it? So our exhibition is called Recycle, uh, the Ubiquitous Bike, 
First of all, it's just fun to say. And the exhibition really has is in three components and it draws on expertise um, that is within our organization and also around it. We have about 20 bikes, uh, which come from the Bicycle Museum of America in New Brenham, Ohio. They sent us a tiny part of their collection. Uh, that was complemented by about 25 wonderful photographs that were curated by Jennifer Tripp and Mark Lubell, who are here in our community and are both photo experts. And then I did a small selection of videos. And the idea, as you said, was really to see the beauty of the bicycles and also their just ever presence in our lives alongside these just marvelous examples of historical bicycles. Right. You know, some of the pictures online that you can see, the website, by the way, is thechurchsagharbor.org. So I really recommend going there and seeing some of the photographs of the bikes that you have in person. But they're all the way from the bone shaker to the penny farthing to the safety bikes that are so ever present now. And then the photographs are also amazing because they show how bikes can be and are just a part of everyday life. Some of the things about the bicycles were extraordinary. There's a really wonderful uh, photograph that was taken by Ron Turner, which is taken in the 70s of a beautiful young woman on a summer's day, sitting on her bicycle with bare feet, talking on a payphone. And it really does talk to that point in our lives in childhood and adolescence, where the bike is almost a physical extension of us. And, and that was really lovely to be able to show that some of the photographs are very whimsical, some of them are very serious, and they're sort of all the way in between. The uh, two videos that we included, one by Basianada and the other by Bari Kumar, they kind of speak to almost in the Basianada case, a sort of chaplain-esque use of the bicycle of a, the artist on a bike who constantly falls into a canal in Amsterdam in the 70s. And the Barry Kumar talks about how bicycles in many parts of the world are A, the primary form of, of transportation, and also B, integral to how people work and make their living. Right. Well, again, our audience can see all this by going to the church, sagharbor.org, both the past exhibits and also the space itself. But let's get back to the bike really quick. What inspired you to do an exhibit about bicycles? We just had Jody Rosen on the show, and Jody wrote the book Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. And I think that's such a great title because it is historic. And it is also, um, I wouldn't say mystery as much as as mystical, for me anyways, I just love the simplicity that its passenger is its engine also. Susan B. Anthony said it was the greatest thing done for the invention of the bicycle was the greatest thing for kind of female, but also individual liberation. Um, so as I mentioned, we worked with the Bicycle Museum of America, which was founded by James Dickey II in New Bremen, Ohio. And the artist who founded the church, Eric Fischel, um, had done a really uh, large portrait of that family. He had been blown away by the collection. And um, in the autumns, we like to deal with material culture. We like to deal with objects that perhaps aren't always considered 
artworks, but nevertheless are just these exquisite design objects. So we've worked with guitars, working with G.E. Smith, the musician, and this year from, we from Saturday Night Live is, is from how Saturday I always Night think Live, of him. Yeah. yeah. And this year we were just really excited to look at bicycles. So drawing on the vast collection of the Bicycle Museum of America, we did a small selection um, really of what we as certainly not experts in the field found to be a really compelling story, which was how ideas of comfort and speed really drove the early development of the bicycle. So we had a bone shaker from uh, 1869. And as you mentioned, we had a penny farthing. It was a reproduction, so our audience can actually get up and um, cycle on it. Oh, they can actually ride it. I, I've never ridden a penny farthing. Did you ride it? Absolutely. First Is it of all, hard to do? I got to ask. <laughs> well, you've got a very long legs and we actually had it on rollers. So it was like a stationary penny sure. farthing. It's amazing. And I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing about the penny farthing was, you know, your feet and your legs are doing the same work, but you're going so much larger because of that very large wheel. Right. So it was a racing bike. And the idea was also that that large wheel would absorb some of the road shock. But, you know, it was dangerous as hell. And that's why yeah. <laughs> that's why the bikes that came after it were called, um, you know, safety bikes. And we had some really interesting Two particularly interesting examples of those bicycles. One was the White Company from, I believe, 1890, sorry, 1889, which had the seat further back. It was really the seat was over the the back wheel. It was a direct drive um, wheel. Mm -hmm. So ergonomically, it didn't work. The actual pedals were too far back. But it, it was really interesting to see these experiments of trying to get the same amount of speed and the same amount of comfort. Mm -hmm. And then there was a really wonderful Rex bicycle, Rex company bicycle, which had three wheels. So two normal size wheels and then a very small back wheel. And the seat itself was connected on a kind of tube that overrode the, the kind of double diamond of the frame. Right with the idea that that small back wheel, again, the two wheels would absorb the shock and you kind of float on that that third right. wheel. So that was really interesting. Well, you obviously that, learned a lot from the, oh, yeah. from My, the exhibit should, because you're talking double diamonds, which is what all the frames <laughs> are now. So that's great. I think the bicycle that most uh, inspired the groups of bicyclists that came to see the show was the 1910 Columbus bicycle roadster, uh, which actually had a literally a machine gun mounted on the front of it. So it was the Boers during the Boer War at right. the end of the 19th century that came up with mounting a machine gun on a bicycle. Unfortunately, you can't actually ride it and shoot the gun. It was belt fed, but you could maneuver it into space um, and then shoot it. And obviously it was just a faster way. This bicycle that we had in the exhibition was obviously done the run up to the First World War. And it was used, this type of bicycle was used early on in the First World War. But once you got into trench warfare, nobody needed a machine gun mounted on a bicycle. But I have to say, some of the groups just thought that was a great idea, you know, to scare those drivers into good behavior. Exactly. Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed about looking at all the photographs of both the bikes you had in person and the actual photographs is it 
it kind of opened my eyes to looking at bikes differently again and you know seeing all the lug work and all the beauty in the construction of the bike i myself have i guess three three bikes four bikes and they're all different and i use them for different purposes but you forget how beautiful they are and how simple they are and i think this exhibit really reminded me of that and that's why i was really glad to get you on the show there's a really interesting um, relationship between kind of the agricultural um, advancements, machines and advancements that happened in the 19th century, leading into advancements into bicycles, and then those engineering advances leading into motorcycles and cars. And then it comes back into bicycle design because once, you know, you get a certain critical mass of cars on the road, bicycles become about leisure and therefore they become about these objects of beautiful design and stylishness. So all of the bikes that come out of deco and then move into the kind of machine age and that streamlineness. And going into the Bowdoin uh, bike, you know, of which there were only 522 made with wow. their fiberglass kind of body, but just beautiful bikes. And then a couple of wild cards, which was we had a water bike um, and we also had an ice bike. So this idea of the bicycle moving out of just, you know, road riding, but really getting into other elements. Uh, Transportation, yeah. yeah. One last time, the exhibit is called Recycle the ubiquitous bike, and it's at the church in Sag Harbor. I believe that the exhibit in the space closes soon, but it will be available online. It for... definitely, we hope. Okay. Sarah Cochran, thank you so much for doing the exhibit at the church. Again, I'll remind the, the listeners, it's thechurchsagharbor.org. You can go there and see pictures of the bikes they had in person and also the photographs. Thank you so much, Bike Talk. Love the work you're doing and um, thank you for your interest in what we're doing. A happy new year to everybody. May it be peaceful and healthy. That was Sarah Cochran of the Church in Sag Harbor, Maine. And Nick, I'll say it again, it's really worth it to spend a little bit of time looking around their website of all the amazing pictures of historical bicycles and then all the photographs about how biking is just a part of everyday life. I really enjoyed it. I guess we can link to it on biketalk.org. What else can you do right. on biketalk.org? Well, if you are looking for a last minute Christmas gift, I can't recommend enough going to our bookshop and looking at some of the books that we have interviewed on the show, whether it be Jody Rosen's Two Wheel Good or Crossings or The Walkable City. They're really good gifts for people that are involved in, in the good fight. So go to biketalk.org and check out those books. You can also donate to patreon there and support the show and if you like the show like us on social media spread the word share the show and write us a review thanks for the show thank you ride safe hi this is stacy with a bike thought i love hearing about the holiday rides and groups like midnight riders in la bike party Safe Street Rebel in San Francisco, Bike Grid Now in Chicago, Critical Mass, which is now worldwide, all manner of people coming together to share in the joy of biking and bring much needed visibility and attention to urban biking. And whose heart isn't warmed by seeing those kids pedaling to school on the bike bus? You know, safety in numbers, right? Well, I hate to be a Grinch, but this also makes me very sad. 
there should not need to be organizing or coordination, costumes, fluorescence, reflective gear to feel safe while riding a bike. Anyone at any age should be able to bike to any place at any time, day or night, without prior planning or an entourage, period. This freedom must be universal. I can't wait for biking to just be a regular daily joy and not about fear or the fight. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocross and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Right.